Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship him by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In today's passage, Paul jumps back into the deep end and he starts doing some heavy lifting And the topic he puts before us is the topic of righteousness. Paul says he wants no righteousness of his own, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. What's he mean by that? What exactly is righteousness? The word righteousness isn't really used outside of the church setting. And when it is used, it's often used uh, differently or more simply than how the Bible uses it. And it's important for us to understand what the Bible means when it talks about righteousness, because in order to understand the gospel, there's certain words that we can't replace with other words to try and make it more simple or make it more palatable. The Bible forces us to use its own vocabulary. And oftentimes when we come across words like this, uh, we treat them as though they only apply when talking about your faith. Words like this don't really apply outside of the church setting. These are words that theologians use, but that's not true. Words like this don't just describe salvation. These are words that apply to every aspect of your life because salvation applies to every aspect of your life, and righteousness is one of those words. So right up front, Part of my goal this morning is to take plenty of time to make sure we understand what the Bible means when it talks about righteousness. What do you think of? When you hear the word righteousness, what thoughts and ideas come to mind? How would you describe it? Oftentimes, uh, I've heard it uh, expressed as though righteousness is really just good deeds, good actions, good behavior. Righteousness is a measure of morality, so to speak, of one's behavior. If they do good things, then they're righteous. If they do bad things, they're unrighteous. But that's not exactly true. 
that's not really what righteousness is because we have to make a distinction between actions and righteousness. Actions can be righteous, but actions are not righteousness in and of itself. Think about this. This was Israel's problem in the Old Testament. They went through the motions. They did all the righteous acts that the law required, but they weren't righteous. Think about the Pharisees. Think about how meticulously they observed every aspect of the law, yet when Jesus comes along, he says, your righteousness better far exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is much more than just one's actions. So what is it? Righteousness is actually a relational term. In its most basic definition, righteousness is the quality of one's standing in relationship to another. Righteousness is fundamentally being approved and accepted in the eyes of someone else. And like I said, I want to make sure we understand this morning what this means. So I want us to think through a number of examples about what righteousness looks like. How does righteousness play out in our lives? First example is I want to talk about the great zucchini. The Great Zucchini is the most popular entertainer for children's birthday parties in the Washington, D.C. area. The Great Zucchini commands a $600 an hour charge. He's booked six months in advance, and he is wildly, wildly popular. And there was a reporter that did a story on the Great Zucchini and followed him around. And this reporter happened to have a friend that had already hired the Great Zucchini on three separate occasions. And so the reporter asked their friend and said, why would you spend so much money on this guy? That's crazy. And this is what his friend said. She said, the whole thing is snowballed into levels of craziness, and it's just embarrassing to be a part of it. I know it's an insane, indulgent thing to do. You could just have a party where all the kids played pin the tail on the donkey or musical chairs or something. But that's just not what's done in this part of D.C., if you did that, then you would be talked about. Did you hear it in there? Who's this party really for? It's not for the child. It's for the parent. Why? What are they really after? It's righteousness. It's righteousness according to their peers. If they throw the right kind of party, they're accepted. And they have right standing with their peers. But if they don't, and they don't do what's expected, then they face rejection. Righteousness speaks to that relational part of you that deep down you want to be accepted. You want to feel approved of. You want to feel that you are okay in the sight of others. And even though we don't think about righteousness on a daily basis, righteousness is something that we think about all the time. Let's think about it from a different angle. What's righteousness according to your job? What's expected of you in order to gain approval and be accepted? I was talking with Wes Barnes a while ago about what it was like for him whenever he worked for Goldman Sachs. And he said that the culture was essentially one where, you know, the guys that he worked with were always boasting about how much they sacrificed for the firm, boasting in these, you know, long hours that they would put in. Because there is this unwritten rule in the culture of Goldman Sachs that everything 
comes second to the firm. Everything. And so if you looked at the partners, what did you see? Well, you saw many of them having already gone through two or three marriages to show how dedicated they were. Everything comes second to the firm. So what's righteousness according to Goldman Sachs? It's two or three divorces and 90-hour work weeks. What's righteousness according to your family? Maybe the reason you get so frustrated during the holidays is because that's when you really feel it. Maybe you know that everybody knows that there's that one person in your family that everybody's got to walk on eggshells around. Everything revolves around making that one person happy. Everything revolves around how they're doing. Why? Well, because this is how we make sure everything goes okay. And as long as you do that, as long as you uphold the status quo and make sure that person is happy, then you have right standing. But if you don't play by those rules and everybody's miserable and they're upset with you. Maybe you feel the pull of righteousness after conversations with friends. Always analyzing if what you said was taken in the wrong way. Or maybe you feel claustrophobic when you know that somebody's upset with you. Or maybe there's no possible way you were going to send your kid to school with store-bought cookies. You will send your kid to school with homemade cookies, with gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, nut-free options. Why? Everybody wants to please somebody. Righteousness pokes at that part of you that's insecure, always wondering if you've done enough, if you are enough, if you've done the right thing, if you look good enough. And all throughout life, and in all sorts of ways, you're asked to measure up, to live according to the righteousness of the world around you. And you're constantly told, this is how you will feel okay. This is how you will feel accepted in the sight of everybody else. Our actions pursue the righteousness we desire. Because righteousness is fundamental to being human. Righteousness is at the core of our humanity. There's a desire to be accepted, to be valued, to be approved of, to have right standing with others in the world in which you live. Why? Because that's how we were originally made. That's what we were originally intended for. And Paul would say that beneath all of that, the most important fundamental question of your life is what is righteousness according to your God? How do you have right standing with him? Because the price of acceptance is complete, absolute perfection. No mistakes, no take-backs, no do-overs, no off days, no bad days. 100% complete perfection. But from the second you were born, from the word go, you had a problem. You were corrupted by sin, and no matter what you did, no matter how hard you tried, a right relationship with God was completely impossible. You essentially had nothing to offer. No actions, no amount of effort on your part would ever make you acceptable to God. And Paul says, that's where the gospel is good news. That's where the gospel tells you that all your work is over. You don't need approval anywhere else. Jesus came, lived a perfect life to give his righteousness as a gift to you so that your standing before God is the same as his standing before God. 
You want to sum up all of Reformed theology in one sentence? It's this. What's true of Jesus is true of you. The way that the Father looks upon the Son is the same way the Father looks upon you. Your standing is the same as his standing. He doesn't look at your flaws. He doesn't look at your shortcomings, your failures. He doesn't see what you see in the mirror. Your standing is before God is utter, complete perfection. You are accepted because you're his child. And there's no love, no favor, no joy that he withholds from you. That is the scandalous free gift of God to all that would believe it to be true. The problem is we don't. It sounds really nice, but we struggle to believe that. And Paul knows we struggle to believe that. Paul knows that we'd rather focus on our deficits because we have a world that likes to put a magnifying glass on your deficits. He knows we live in a world that tells you a different story. It's always offering you some other means, some other way of being approved and accepted. And he knows that we come into the gospel, we hear about our righteous standing before God in Christ, how we have approval before God, and all that sounds great, but it goes in one ear and out the other because deep down we feel like it's not enough. We still want more approval. We still feel like we need something more. And so did the Philippians. This is why Paul gives his warning in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So who's Paul talking about and why is he calling them dogs? Well, in Paul's day, this is what Jews would call Gentiles because they did not follow the Mosaic law. So they called them dogs because they were like, to them, to Jews, Gentiles were like dogs that just ran the streets eating trash because Gentiles did not observe the dietary laws of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic law, so they were unclean. They, will eat, they were evildoers because they didn't follow the laws of the Old Testament. They were mutilators of the flesh because they worshiped their God by mutilating themselves and showing their devotion. But we know that Paul is not talking about Gentiles when he says these things because the Philippians are Gentiles. So who's he talking about? He's talking about a group that are called the Judaizers, and he's using their own language against them. What the Judaizers taught was that, yes, Jesus is necessary for righteousness and salvation, but other things are necessary as well. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to observe the dietary laws. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised if you want to have acceptance before God. So Paul warns them against them because what do they teach? They taught that the work of Christ isn't enough. His death, his resurrection are not enough for you to be fully right and accepted before God. You still had to observe the law as well. Now, how can we connect to that for a second? Because I'm pretty sure nobody here is struggling through whether or not to follow the dietary laws, and nobody here is struggling about whether or not to be circumcised, to be accepted by God. But the truth is, we really struggle with the same problem. The challenge to the Philippians is the same challenge to us because we struggle to believe, again, that Jesus' righteousness is enough. I struggle to believe that Jesus' righteousness is enough, and so we start living by the lie that the Judaizers taught, that Jesus plus something else is what I really need. Jesus plus something else is how I will have real righteousness. Righteousness. 
Jesus plus something else is how I will get real acceptance. Jesus plus something else is how I will feel at peace with who and what I am. And we can do it in all sorts of ways. We're always adding something in where we try to add something in to Jesus. But no matter how we do it, it essentially falls into two categories. The first is that we try to supplement Christ's righteousness by trying to manufacture our own through our behavior. So the baseline of this thinking is that, you know, in the end, Jesus just kind of gives you a leg up. Jesus just gives you a boost. But in the end, it's up to you to do the rest. You still need to do your part and prove yourself. Which means that when we believe that, your focus just begins to fall on all of your religious activities. So your Bible reading, prayer time, service, how much theology you know begin to become sources of pride. But the problem with that is it just puts you in the position where you're focusing more on your performance than you are pursuing Christ. Always wondering, have I done enough? Have I served enough? Have I done the right things? Am I worthy? But the truth is, inevitably, you're going to fail. And when you fail, you start dealing in that guilt, shame, compensation cycle over and over again, where you do the best you can, and then you fail, and then to compensate, you try harder. You promise that you're going to do better this next time to try and earn God's approval. But here's the problem with that. You know, if that's all it takes, then the gospel's not worth believing. It's really not even that good of news. Because think about it, just from a logical perspective. How is it that God could look upon the perfect death, the perfect life, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, and for us to think that we add something to our standing before God in light of that just because we commit to read the Bible over a year or just because we thought we had a good devotional life this week or just because we felt like we really served with our whole heart at something else. In the end, it's ludicrous to think that we could offer something in light of what was offered on, our, on your behalf. Do you focus more on your accomplishments or what Christ has accomplished for you? Because there's freedom when we recognize what he has offered on our behalf. And the second way is that we, we compensate for Christ's righteousness because it doesn't feel like it's enough to make us feel okay. And so we want more approval. So yeah, it's great news. We want the fact that God approves of us. We want the approval from God, but we also want approval from that person over there. Or we want approval from this person or this group or these people. And we think if I had that, then I'd really be at peace. And there's no approval from anyone else that could possibly compare to what Christ offered on your behalf. There are all sorts of ways that we fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus plus something else is really going to make me feel okay. Jesus plus something else is real righteousness. But no matter how you do it, the end result is always going to be the same. And we see it in verse 3. Paul says, for we are the circumcision. And when he says that, he just means that we are the true people of God. He says, we are the circumcision who by the spirit of God, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So how can you tell 
if you're looking for righteousness apart from Christ. However you do it, the end result is the same. You can't worship. You can't worship in glory in Christ alone because you don't quite feel like there's anything to celebrate yet. Because you're focused on obtaining righteousness by other means. So there's that sense that you're not there. You haven't arrived yet. There's still more work to do. There's things that need to be accomplished. There's things that should have been accomplished. There's things that you want to accomplish in order for you to feel okay. And so we come and we, don't, we can't worship in glory in Christ because we can't stop thinking about that project at work or what those people thought of you at that party last night or all the ways that you failed this week. And so we can come and we can go through the motions, but it's not genuine worship because our hearts are elsewhere. Now, Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you recognize some of that's true for you. But you have pursued affirmation elsewhere. You have wanted righteousness apart from Christ. You have looked for things to tell you that you're okay and you're approved of. So what would Paul say to you? Well, in verses 5 and 6, he just starts off by saying, you know, look at me. Look at me. Look at my life. And think about your life for a second. Let's walk through it. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So what's he saying? He's saying, I was born into the special people of God. Then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's a part of the tribe that's part of the royal house of Israel. So not only was he born into the special people of God, he's a part of the special people of God within the special people of God. And as to the law, a Pharisee. So he's elite, not just by birth, but by position. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's an overachiever. He's made all the right decisions, and he's kept the law. His performance was impeccable. Paul was what every Jew wanted their son to be. And what does Paul think about that? Three times in two verses, he says that he could care less. Three times, he says that he considers all of that, his former life, everything, all of those accolades and that status is complete loss for the sake of Christ and just the opportunity to know him. He'd let it all go over. He'd let it all go over and over again. And he says that it's all Lost, but then he goes further and he says, not only is it lost, but I consider it all rubbish. Now, that's an unfortunate translation. Why? Number one, Paul's not British. Number two, it's the fact that, that it's an extremely tame translation of what Paul actually says. In fact, I can't say what he actually says. It's often translated as dumb which is also a very sweet, polite translation. And his point is simple. It's very clear. He's saying, look, I had everything that you want. I had everything that you desire for yourself. I had the pedigree, the privilege, the status, the performance record, the accomplishments. I did all the right things, all the reputation that you could ever want. I had the career the adoration and approval of everything and everybody. I had everything that you chased for yourself, and it's all 
a flaming dog pile. Stop pursuing those things. Christ is so much better than you could possibly imagine. So much so that I could have the best that this world has to offer. And I would gladly give it all up just for the opportunity to know him. It's all nothing compared to the surpassing value and worth of Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, he says his life now comes down to one goal, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, that by any means necessary, I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. What's he saying to you? He's saying that when you know who you are and what you have in Christ, everything else fades away. The same way that you can't see the stars anymore whenever the sun shines in all of its brilliance. There's nothing that compares to Jesus Christ. There's a great story about Thomas Aquinas. If you don't know Thomas Aquinas, he lived 800 years ago. And quite, quite simply, he's one of the most influential thinkers or theologians in all of Christendom. And his life's work was a, a book called, or a, a volume of works called the Summa Theologiae, which is Latin for a summary of theology. And it was a multi-volume work, and he got to his late 40s, and he had one volume left to write of his lasting legacy and contribution to the church. One more volume, and it would be done. But everybody that was closest to Thomas Aquinas noticed that he stopped writing. And the thing is, he would always write. He was always writing something down. A prolific thinker and writer. He produced, you know, he produced volumes of ten men. And so one of his friends came to him after they noticed he wasn't writing for a few months, and they said, Thomas, why aren't you writing anymore? You have one more volume, and you're done with, with this great work. And he said, I could hardly describe it to you. And he's like, what? Why aren't you writing anymore? You're almost there. You need one more volume. And he said, I can't write. And he said, why? He said, a few months ago, he said, I went into the sanctuary, like I always do, for my time to pray. And he said, I had an experience where I just had this vision and this revelation from God just to see Jesus as he was that I can't put into words. I can't even, I can't even describe it to you. Therefore, I can write no more. What else do I have to say? I can write no more because all that I have written thus far seems like straw compared to who he really is. Paul would ask you this morning, what are you pursuing? Don't you know that it doesn't compare to what you already have? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all of our theology and understanding of you doesn't even compare to truly who and what you are. You are glory inconceivable, power and majesty that's unimaginable. And we are unified with you. You have shared your life with us and the righteousness that you have before the Father, you give to us. It's hard to believe that at times. It's hard to believe in the midst of our failures, our shortcomings, that you could see us as perfect and lovable and accepted. And yet, that is the good news that you offer to us. We thank you for 
the reminder that this table is to us, that all of our work is done. There's nothing that we could fill our hands with and offer to you. We are a people that are just called to come and receive. This morning we receive you. We ask that you would meet us at your table and that you would strengthen us and nourish us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.